Welcome to the Present History Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. The following episode contains potential spoilers for all the James Bond films and books. So if somehow you've managed to avoid Bond for your entire life and still don't know what happens, go watch the films first and then come back. If not, get comfortable and enjoy. James Bond is dead. Infected with the most metaphorically and thematically brilliant biological weapon, trapped on an island somewhere off the coast of his traditional foe, Russia, Bond could only watch as the missiles careened towards him. With a wry smile, a deep breath, and the final words, You have all the time in the world. Bond resigned himself to his fate. No time to die came to a close with the rugged and iconic tones of Louis Armstrong's We Have All the Time in the World, washing over the credits. Daniel Craig's final outing saw the first and only death of Bond. After 25 films, 7 actors, and a 58-year emphatically British love affair with the character. From the early outings of Sean Connery's patriotic icon in the height of the Cold War, through a rather bland blip in George Lazenby's Australian-tinged incarnation, the suave, polite, if rather cheesy and camp Roger Moore interpretation, to the prototype of a grittier Bond in Timothy Dalton, and a return to the camp with the almost parodic Pierce Brosnan films, and Daniel Craig's truly modern, emotional, gritty and human iteration. Bond has faced stereotypical Soviet threats, grandiose crime lords and eccentric businessmen, homegrown internal threats, nuclear weapons, biological warfare, space travel, terrorism and dictatorships. What all these antagonists have in common is that they're just as much a product of their time as the character of Bond himself. As time marches on, ideologies and world powers shift, rise and fall, as political situations evolve and different threats take their turn as the most prominent, so too did Bond and his enemies. Whatever was a perceived threat to Britain's security at the time, invariably ended up reflected in the latest instalment of the Bond franchise. This was common from the very beginning. The scent and sweat of a casino are nauseating at three in the morning. The opening words of Casino Royale, Fleming's debut Bond novel, immediately draw the reader in and walks them with all the suave nonchalance and incessant detail that was to become Fleming's literary trademark. Through the doors of the casino and into the author's world. It was a world he knew intimately personally, passionately. A world Fleming wished to invoke, a world he wanted the reader to become a part of. At the time Fleming first punched the letters of his gold-plated 1947 Royal Quiet Deluxe Portable Typewriter, Britain was still reeling from the aftermath of the Second World War. As explained by Dr Christine Berberich, reader in literature at the University of Portsmouth, at the end of the Second World War, Britain was faced with continued rationing and austerity. 
Large cities all across the country had suffered heavily during the Blitz. Whole industries lay in ruins, and the process of rebuilding was a slow and laborious one. It was from this grey, often dreary context that Ian Fleming's James Bond emerged. Bond was a stark contrast to the rationed food, bombed-out businesses and homes. He was everything a British person wished they could be. While the British people were learning to survive on hand-me-down clothes, struggling to make ends meet, Bond was expensively dressed. As the British public put up with rationing and a limited diet, Bond only ate and drank expensive foods and alcohol. In the midst of a chronic housing shortage and the inability to travel anywhere abroad, Bond frequented high-flying casinos, travelled to the most exotic locations, spent time with the best-looking people, and stayed in the best hotels. And, on occasion, he would also save the world. Bond can be seen as an answer to the woes of post-war Britain. He was the last stalwart of British power, decadence, authority, wit, and style. As Fleming's biographer and espionage historian Ben McIntyre wrote, It is almost impossible to exaggerate the allure of Bond's lifestyle to a post-war Britain strained by rationing, deprived of glamour and still bruised by the privations of war. Bond is, quite simply, a stylish, fast-shooting, high-living, sexually liberated advertisement for all the things ordinary Britons never had yet dreamed of. And yet, he was also the optimistic herald of a new age. In the midst of 1950s austerity, Britain was celebrating the coronation of a new queen, the conquering of Mount Everest and the breaking of the four-minute mile by Roger Bannister. Bond emerged not only as the last remnants of a bygone British empire, but also a symbol of what could yet still be. As remarked by Alan Judd in his 2012 introduction to Casino Royale, Bond heralded the birth of an element of national and later international mythology, as enduring and almost as credible as the real coronation, Everest, or the four-minute mile. As the British Empire had practically disintegrated in the wake of the Second World War, James Bond presented Britain with a new figurehead for its national and potentially imperial myth. Explained succinctly by Sam Goodman for The Guardian, spies such as Fleming's Bond in particular satisfied the need for reassurance that Britain was still as much of a player on the global stage as it had ever been. It seems as well that Fleming, and even Bond himself, were highly aware of this role. As Bond leaps to Britain's defence against his Japanese contact Tiger Tanaka in You Only Live Twice, England may have been bled pretty thin by a couple of world wars, our welfare state politics may have made us expect too much for free, and the liberation of our colonies may have gone too fast. But we still climb Everest, and beat plenty of the worlds at plenty of sports, and win Nobel Prizes. As a figurehead of resurgent British power, Bond also, naturally, became the hero of Britain's Cold War. It didn't take long for the Bond novels to be picked up as fertile ground for film. It was hardly ten years after Casino Royale's publication that Bond's first foray into cinema was produced. Dr No, in 1962, 
was an interesting place to start. In this film, Bond faces off against a mad German-Chinese scientist, Dr. No, on his private island, where he intends to disrupt the Project Mercury space launch from Cape Canaveral with his atomic-powered radio beam. As a villain, Dr. No was culturally perfect for the time. He is of German descent, giving the audience distinct callbacks to the Nazi enemy Britain had so valiantly defeated years prior. But he is also of Chinese origin, a symbol of the threat of Chinese communist malevolence that was beginning to combat the Soviet Union for the title of Western civilization's greatest threat. It was also a chance for an ugly imperial stereotype to rear its distinctly racist head again. In the words of Dominic Sandbrook, Fu Manchu is Dr. No, basically. Fu Manchu was created in 1913 by Sax Roma, and later became a symbol of the yellow peril of the 1930s. He was the personification of the perceived unemotional cruelty of the Chinese. That's from the insidious Dr. Fu Manchu in 1913. The symbol of the Western world's xenophobic stereotypes that coincided with an increase in Chinese emigration. With the release of Dr. No also came the Americanization of Bond. Not only was he Britain's Cold War hero, he also became a hero for America. Bond's films began to be impacted by America's foes just as much as Britain's. The order of the books chosen for adaptation illustrates this. Drew Moniot of the University Film and Video Association noticed this trend, writing, Can it be purely coincidental that Dr. No, which involved a mad scientist's attempt to divert the course of rockets launched from Cape Canaveral, happened to be selected as the first Bond thriller back in 1962, when America's space program was actually plagued with rocket failures just prior to America's first manned flight. Consider the Cold War theme of From Russia With Love, released in 1963, a year of fierce Soviet-American competition in the arms and space races, or the threat of the gold reserves at Fort Knox in Goldfinger in 1964, at a time when de Gaulle had begun to set in motion a scheme to attack the US gold reserves by converting $300 million into gold. As the Cold War progressed, as different threats rose and fell, they were reflected in the Bond film series. Shifts in politics and public opinion directly affected what the audience would see in the upcoming film. As the emphasis on Russia as the main foe of the Western world began to decrease, so did their portrayal in the films. Arguably, the Soviet Union ceased to be a major enemy for James Bond after Goldfinger in 1964. Spectre took over the role of the omnipresent, looming, evil power with agents everywhere and a seeming inability to be defeated. As the 60s came to a close and the 70s dawned, the political and public concerns, as well as the face of Bond, began to change. Sean Connery was replaced by Roger Moore in 1973, and in his first outing he was not fighting Spectre, Blofeld, the Soviet Union or any world superpower. Instead, Bond was squaring up to an American crime lord, Mr. Big, who is also a dictator of a small Caribbean island, and a major proponent of America's drug problem. And if that wasn't enough, he was also using the fear of a voodoo cult to control the residents of his island 
San Monique. This was an entirely new antagonist for Bond. In the previous four films, he had been fighting Blofeld and Spectre. Now he was pushed into the American War on Drugs that had started in 1971. Bond was becoming an American political and cultural plaything just as much as his literary origins had been in Britain. In the 1980s, the Soviet Union returned as a main antagonist for Bond's films. This coincided with Ronald Reagan's launching of a second Cold War. As Mikhail Gorbachev would later remark, never, perhaps, in the post-war decades was the situation in the world as explosive and hence more difficult and unfavourable as in the first half of the 1980s. This was instantly reflected in the Bond films, with Roger Moore's final four outings facing the threat of Soviet space travel, Moonraker, the threat of KGB officers stealing a British automatic targeting attack communicator, in Fiori's only, the further expansion of the Soviet Union into Europe, in Octopussy, and a KGB-backed attack on Silicon Valley in A View to a Kill. It's clear to see that as the political situation and the perceived national enemy evolved and changed in the real world, so too did Bond's larger-than-life antagonists in the films. When Pierce Brosnan first graced the screen as Bond in 1995's GoldenEye, Britain had been in a recession and the Soviet Union had fallen in 1991. GoldenEye serves as a perfect transition piece between the newly ended Cold War and the new modern world. It begins in 1986, as Bond and Agent 006, Alec Trevelyan, Sean Bean, infiltrate a Soviet chemical weapons facility and destroy it. Nine years later, Trevelyan, having faked his death, returns, now as a criminal mastermind. He intends to steal money from the Bank of England, erase all its records with an electromagnetic pulse, and bring down the British economy. It could not have been a better bridge between the Cold War villainy of the Soviet Union to the new and painfully present threat of economic instability. The recession that hit Britain in the early 1990s was its longest since the Great Depression of the 1930s, and now Bond was facing it too, just in his classically over-the-top fashion with cheesy one-liners and plenty of explosions. This trend continued in the Brosnan films, with the 1990s being a decade of Bond facing off against media moguls, Elliot Carver in Tomorrow Never Dies, who just reeks of similarities to Rupert Murdoch and his media empire, and oil tycoons and anarchist terrorists, envisioning the threat of Middle Eastern oil crises and embodying the growing fear of the coming millennia in The World Is Not Enough in 1999. Thank you very much for listening to this first part of our Bond duology, You Only Live forever. Check out the next episode where we continue to dive in to the changing faces of Bond's enemies from 9-11 to today.